uh, with something else is that I remember there was a tennis coach and this is going back years and years and years. And he was just getting people to enjoy tennis at, at a level which they'd never experienced before. So they, he wasn't training to people to become, you know, the, the next Federer. He was just looking at people who wanted to enjoy the game more. And, and so they, they all came in and, and he just gave them to hit a few balls over the net. And then he'd said to somebody, he'd say, who's your favorite player? So maybe they'd say Nadal. He'd say, okay, I want you to imagine Nadal's over there. Just watch him play. You know, watch the way he hits. What's that? That kind of, you know, that, that physique. The, watch, the, watch the way he hits the ball. Watch the way he moves around the court. And the guy was going, yeah, I've got that. He said, now I want you to walk in. Walk into his body, be in the Dow. And he goes, I can't. He said, just do it, just do it. So the guy went there and it was just unbelievable, the transformation. All of a sudden, he was like hitting the ball over there like he never used to. He was hitting the spots and he was kind of like bouncing up and down like he'd never enjoyed it before. And I thought, now that's interesting. That was Simon Capon, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that, as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. What's happening, everybody? Good to have you guys here. So our show today is another, and we don't have that many of these, and I'm trying to to fix that trend, but it's a show on sports psychology, the mind, and belief systems. And if you've been in sport for long enough, it's like every year, I know every year I've been a coach, every year I understand more and more and more the importance of the mind, the importance of belief, the importance of our energy that we carry with us, and how all these things have a massive impact on our training and our competition and our lives in general. And our guest for the show today is Simon Capon. Simon is a hypnotherapist, a master NLP or neuro-linguistic programming practitioner, as well as the author of the book, It's Time to Start Winning. Simon has been working with professional athletes as a sports psychologist since 2006, using a variety of techniques, including skills from NLP, as well as hypnotherapy. Simon has coached athletes to the highest level who have achieved uh, titles on the national, international, and world levels. His philosophy is simple, which is to create self-belief and that your behaviors and actions will change and so will your results. This is the epitome of why I love these conversations. Really, it's almost in in a deeper sense, this is almost... um, this is a huge part of what we do as coaches, whether you're a strength coach, a sport coach, or even you're just an athlete listening to this. Um, this is a huge core of being an, an athlete and training and this whole process of becoming the best version of ourselves athletically and as human beings in general. And with mental training particularly, it's something we talk about a lot. It's something we pay so much credence to, but 
I think that the time we actually fundamentally spend uh, develop, learning more about our belief systems and training the mind, we need to spend more time on it. I'm happy to bring these shows and I'm excited to bring you guys this one. So topics today, uh, Simon is going to get into his process of assessing mental skills and needs. He's going to talk about the link between our body, our posture, and how changing our physiology can change our mental and emotional response. He's going to expand on that in methods of using one's body language and posture and some different, some different ways and ideas there that we can really get into that emotional response. Simon's going to talk about how to unwire our thoughts from prior negative uh, situations and, and experiences and how we can unwire that and get onto the right positive track mentally. And he's also going to talk about how we can fully engage ourselves in the present moment. All the way through, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I really enjoyed touching on all these topics and picking up on Simon's expertise on all of them. So let's get on to it. Episode 198. Simon, so what got you into NLP or neuro-linguistic programming and sports psychology and, and this whole field of human performance and behavior? Okay, great. So when I was 16 years of age and I was about to leave school, um, I was, there was, there was a, a government-sponsored um, thing called, called the YTS. It was called the Youth Training Scheme. And the Youth Training Scheme was for anyone of school-leaving age so they could kind of had a hands-on experience of any trade or career that they wanted. So whilst my friends were learning to become you know, bricklayers or builders or mechanics, I was actually the first person in the UK to be accepted on the YTS as a snooker player. And so the club that sponsored me would allow me to play in the club pretty much whenever I wanted. So at 7 a.m., just about every morning, I'd be in the club just practicing my routine. I was literally the happiest person you could ever imagine. But a few hours later, something would happen which would change everything, which was literally just a snooker club opening, which is nothing extraordinary about that. <clears throat> However, whenever I was observed, whenever I had an opponent, it was almost as if my whole personality changed because I had this huge fear of failure. And I think I actually had a, a, a greater fear of other people's expectations, you know, what they expected from me as a player. Um, and I never told anyone about this. I really didn't think they'd understand. The only person that I, I told was my coach, was a guy called Tony Mailer, and he, he was a he was a great a great coach. But he sat me down one day and said, "You know what's happening?" And I said, "It was just the pressure, it's the pressure of this fear of failure, the pressure, the fear of other people's expectations." You know, as a player. And he said to me, "Okay," he said, "Look, this is the way I look at it." He said, "When you are just practicing on your own." or when there is an audience, or when you're playing somebody in a competition, he said, physically, you're the same person, and the cue's the same, and the balls are the same, and the table's the same. And I said, that's right. And he said, in which case, you've created it, you're gonna have to sort it out, there's nothing I can do. And he just got up and he walked away. And he left me with some very frustrated, I was perhaps a little bit angry, but most of all, very, very confused thoughts. And I thought, whoa, he's, he's right, but what am I supposed to do now? And I thought, I know, I know, I'll just keep going because maybe I'll just grow out of it. But as the weeks, months and years went by, it just progressively got worse. And then it got to a point where I was playing in a, a first round qualifier of the UK championships. And I've been drawn against an Australian lad. I've never seen him play, never even heard of him. But the day before our match, I overheard a conversation between two other players and one said to the other, have you seen the Australian lad? He said, why he's bothered turning up? I've no idea. He's worse than useless. And I overheard this. And instantly, my fear of failure shot through the roof and my fear of other people's expectations. Because I just thought, wow, people expect me to absolutely, completely destroy this guy. And I'm not too sure if that's going to happen. And I just hit panic mode. And I went into the match terrified. I lost the match 5-0. And when I, I walked out of there, I just labeled myself as somebody with no courage, somebody with no bottle. I put my cue away and I never played competitive snooker again. And it wasn't until 15 years later when I was in my kitchen and the TV was on and the presenter mentioned NLP. And I'd I just inquisitively, I thought, what's NLP? So I went to um, the computer and I tapped it into the search box and it said neuro-linguistic programming. But as I was reading more and more 
I was kind of getting those light bulb moments. You know, those, those moments when you read something, you think this is really talking to me. And I remember thinking so clearly, God, I needed this for the last 20 odd years. So there and then I, I, I signed up for a practitioner course. I completed my home study, went to London for some intensive life training. Um, and then passed my, my exam, collected my certificate, and I just studied. And I, and I was attending seminars and trainings, and I became a master practitioner of NLP. Then I became a trainer. I included hypnosis. But I also brought in a collection of psychological skills and techniques, which kind of brought together a system that I created. And as a result of the system, I've worked with GB athletes, both able-bodied and disabled. I've worked with professional footballers, golfers, tennis players. I write for UK Tennis. Um, and I was included in a BBC documentary leading up to the Rio Olympics. But, you know, that's kind of, that's where I started. And that's, what, and that's a long-winded answer to that. But that's kind of, yeah, my, my background, really. And that's brought me to where I am right now. Yeah, I, res I resonate a lot with uh, your story, especially with the expectations element. And as I was reading yeah. your book, I was thinking about, and I'm a person who has spent years and, and in my uh, basketball in high school is my big thing. And I spent so much time training my body to jump higher and be faster and stronger and be physically able to play the game. But I didn't even start, the mental stuff didn't even start registering until I was in my 30s when I wasn't even playing competitively yeah, right. anymore. And, and honestly, if I could go back in time and I could have picked one thing to really truly work on, that would have actually, that would have made the biggest difference in making me better looking at how I played. It would have been the mental training because I was physically fine and, and above what I needed to. But I kind of like yourself on a level, like I, I would only do well, truly well, if there were um, very little expectations. Like if our team was losing and it didn't matter almost, then every shot would go in. Or I hit a game-winning shot <laughs> yeah. one time when the the coaches had drawn up a play and it completely fell apart and they threw it to me on the sideline with one, like one second left and I just chucked it up and it went in because there was no expectation. But as soon as there's an expectation, uh, it's, it's, it, I completely agree. And so that's been something yeah. I've been sorting out in my yeah. own in, in my own life, yeah. you know. Um, so I, I was going to say too, I, it's funny because I would have totally butchered this snooker. Maybe uh, Americans just say it's snooker, but that game is kind of like, is like pool or billiards or something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's like pool, but the table's 12 foot by six. So it's a, it's a big table. Um, and it's very popular. I mean, in China, it's absolutely huge. And Europe is quite big as well. Um, but it's strange actually, because um, I, I would have thought that it would have been a sport that you guys would have really taken Taken on, but I know that pool is is a big game in the states, um, and and I, I talked to quite a few of the players over there, and uh, I know how serious it's taken, and I know how highly skilled they are, and it would, it would be great if you know I know there's a guy called Barry Hearn, I, I, Barry Hearn's a, a, a like a boxing promoter, so I'm sure that people you know in the states know who he is, but he was he's very heavily involved in Suka, and I'm just kind of like waiting for the day when he actually takes the game over there and sort of promotes it because I, I think it would probably take off. Maybe if it was going to take off, it would have happened by now. But uh, but going back to your, your situation is that the, the thing that I definitely lacked is when I look back, I didn't even have the, the skills really to, to reach anywhere near the, the, the top of the game. But I think that if I'd had, um, if I was better mentally prepared in those days, I certainly would at least form, fulfill my true potential, which is what, what I think everyone needs to do. And by, by really understanding their, their psychology and really understanding how they can, um, can create a better mental game, then it at least allows them to fulfill their potential, which I think is what everyone should do. Yeah, and in the the first steps to that, I might I, I had this kind of linear question list, but maybe I'll I'll skip around to um, in yeah. basically what you said is when an athlete has those moments of failure in a game, what's what's the first step in sorting out where that's coming from? So what what is that process in terms of okay, you when this pressure situation hits you, you kind of crumble. What's what's the process of getting into that? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, is that I think that um, I think most people, um, they think in terms of saying that when when they are, they are training, they're going to be in this state. But actually, when they are uh, in a competition, 
then it's something completely different. And I only had this conversation with somebody the other day. And I think the reality is what we need to do is to create a state of mind, which is exactly the same in whatever we're doing. So whether you're training or whether you're in a competitive state, it actually makes no difference. The reality is that you are creating habits. You're creating automatic responses. So whatever you're doing, then it's just the same response time after time. So, for instance, um, so do, when, when you were saying about um, – uh, sorry, can you, <laughs> oh, so I started to babble off there. Could you just repeat the last bit of that question again? Sorry. Oh yeah, sure. So the the process basically once someone is a, a, is failing in the sport, they had they've had a poor experience, yeah. and okay. what uh, yeah, what what's the first that what's that process of st- yeah. of of going through that? How does that start? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so the thing is, what I always say to anybody is that when we've we've had a poor result. And sometimes, you know, they, they can still win and have a poor result. And they, they come away from that and just feel that they didn't really perform as well as they, they needed to. And what I always say to people is that, and I know it's, I, I know it's like an NLP term, but there's no failure, there's any feedback. But I think that is so, so important. So what I get, to, what I get people to do is, first of all, whenever there's been a, a poor performance, we always get a big piece of paper. And the first thing we do is that we write down all the ways they can make the next performance better because there, there's reasons behind that. And number one is I want to take their focus away from a bad memory and I want to place it onto something which allows them to move forward. So, um, so what, what we would do is I never say, how can you make the next performance better? Because that implies there may be just one solution. I always say, write down as many as you can, because that implies there are multiple and there always are. So what we do is we write down all the ways to make the performance better next time. Um, and then we say, well, let's say, so for instance, if they came up with eight, 10 or 12 ways, which is absolutely fantastic, by the way, we then say, well, hold on, what we're going to do is we need to implement two or a maximum three at a time. Because what we don't want to do, of course, is throw these new ideas in and confuse things and, and make it worse still. So we always look at a performance, whether it's been a poor performance or not, and always look at ways that we can make the next performance better, understanding that what we don't ask is what went wrong. I think that's what most people do. They talk about what went wrong, and it kind of takes you deep into the problem. Um, and then those memories of how it felt and what it was like start to get stored in your mind, and that'd be quite quite dangerous. I want people to come out of that event and straight away understand that we're looking forward, let's implement some ideas, and let's actually get it out there. So that that's, that, that's the process for me personally anyway. Yeah, I like the idea of um, – could you say one, one more time you, the NLP term of failure and feedback? What was that again? Yeah, so it was there's no failure, there's only feedback. I see. And, and which, which is so, so true because, you know, is that we, we look at failure um, and that word in itself kind of brings up some really, really negative feelings. But the reality is, is that you, you, you don't fail. You know, you, you've got to look at a result. And if it's not the result you want, i.e. you've, you've lost or it, it hasn't turned out the way you wanted, then you've got to look at that result and say, okay, that's the feedback that I've got. Now I need to do is take it back a few steps and actually see what went wrong. Look at the mechanics, maybe the mindset, whatever it may be, make some alterations and bang, off we go again. So it's, you know, it's quite mechanical, really. So we kind of take the emotion out of it in, in that sense. Um, and look at it as a as a more of a, a, a mechanical, you know, so we can take bits out, put back, put things back in, change things around, get back out there, try it, see if it works, and it's this constant process. So we're always growing, we're always looking to kind of like take the take the next step forward. Would you say that when athletes have issues, and I, I love that, I love the idea of of making it all, it's all good. Like the idea that it is all good because in the, in, in, I mean, I, I know I'm sure sports in the UK are like this, how it's, I mean, there's so much pressure here in the United States on athletes and I'm yeah. sure it's like that everywhere, but it's there. We're always, um, we're always trying to find a way, I think to, uh, how do I want to say this? Like, I, I guess you could say like to be loved through our successes and how yeah. I think that there's so much emotion that comes up that we often repress that comes around failing or not doing well enough. And would you yeah. say that athletes, like when, when we, I guess you could say choking or, or not, um, not reaching our highest potential inconsistency, uh, a lot of issues where we don't, 
we don't do as well as we could are almost all those really linked to our, our like inner emotions you could say like of our fears and things like that i mean is that where all that really comes from uh, yeah i i believe so i mean the thing is is that failure is inevitable <clears throat> we have to fail in order to um to, to be able to improve so I, I i always say to people look failure is, is is a must and it must be accepted as feedback which we've already discovered um but i i will give you i'll give you an example is that there was a guy that i was working with who was um was a sprinter um and he was so devoted to his sport it was incredible and not just the psychological part but the physical part as well and he said to me he said look he said, with all due respect, I understand what you're saying about failure, but I cannot allow it to happen. It just can't happen. And he was a guy that was winning races for fun. But I explained to him, I said, as you move on to the international circuit, you will, you will be defeated. There is no question, you will. And he said, well, I'll, I'll come to that when, when, I, when I need to. I said, no, 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 listen, I, I'll explain it again to him. I said, so what I did was, I said to him, so I knew he went to the gym. I knew he went four times a week. And I said to him, how often do you go? And he said, well, you know, I go four times a week. And I said, so am I right in thinking that the goals were to increase the weight and the number of reps by pushing yourself to limits? Because at the time he was building up bulk and he was doing a lot of weight training. He said, yeah, absolutely. Of course. He said, I want to gain weight. He said, I want to make more reps. He said, that's, that's what I do. I said, right. I said, how do you know you have pushed yourself to the absolute limit? And his answer was, when I can't do any more, it's the only way to go forward. I said, so what you're saying then is you have to fail in enable to you to, to actually go forward, to, to, to take that and then, and then to, to, to go up a weight or go up to more reps. And he looked at me and he smiled and he went, yeah, if you like. I said, that's <laughs> fine. That's all I needed to know. Because the reality is it doesn't matter you know, who you are, what you do. There will always be someone who's going to come along, who's going to take the top spot. So even, you know, the greats like Usain Bolt, you know, there was a time that, you know, he was indestructible. But then as time went on, you know, the other guys caught up with him and he had to understand that, you know, that was an inevitable experience. And I know that he's he's retired now, but we, we do have to look at failure in a, in a very, very different way. And I think it's absolutely vital. Um, so, you know, we can't avoid it, but we can load um, the learnings in a very, very different way. And I'm sure we'll look at that during during our talk. Yeah. A, a quick follow up question, because with that sprinter as well, I remember I was reading that story in your book and right. I, I was trying to actually make sense of or I, I was trying to think about a little bit more deeply about when you said you smiled when he mentioned that he had to fail. Was yeah. that I mean, is yeah. that is that because you talk about maybe readjusting our thoughts on what failing is? Yeah. Is that so was that something that he needed to readjust then? I mean, yeah. what, what can yeah. you tell, tell me a little bit more about that? So, so basically, the way he was, the way we were going with that was that when he did fail, and inevitably it was going to happen, I just felt that it was going to be a real hit to him, okay. and it was almost like he was going to hit his pride. So he was going to sort of think he he did have a big ego, as many of the sprinters do, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But so, so when I knew that there would be a time when he failed, I knew there would be something when somebody would beat him, you know, and I was concerned that that would knock him. And I wanted to make sure that we put things in place so that when that happened, he understood what it was about rather than seeing it as, as a, you know, as, as a big step back or, you know, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was or any of those other things that we, we tend to think about. So I was almost sort of preparing him, if you like, for the inevitable, but so that he understood that failure is a big part of moving forward. It was, it was probably, you know, it's something which we, which we have to go through. It's inevitable. But I was just kind of like preparing him for it. So when he smiled at me, looked at me, it was almost kind of like one of those moments when he thought, yeah, okay, the pennies drops. I kind of understand where you're actually coming from now. <clears throat> oh, perfect. Yeah, I definitely understand that more. And, and so let's get into some of these methods and, and training means of, of helping ourselves just use feedback better. And the, the first question I had, this is something that I've, I've had a little experience with in the past. And so I really resonated with it in your book was the link between our, our, our body and our, our posturing and, and how we carry ourselves and what actually ends up happening in our outputs. And maybe even a question that would probably precede that I should ask it before, but in the book, you mentioned uh, our state and how that impacts everything. So could you define state and then talk about how that impacts our energy and our performance? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'd say it'd probably be a slightly different way. If, if I explain what I mean by the link between sort of the physiology and the mind to begin with, um, and it goes back to a story. So I kind of like to explain things with stories because I think we kind of learn with those much better. So just before I started to uh, look at NLP, um, I went to a seminar in Scotland and we had a, uh, the guy said, we've got a guest speaker this morning. Um, he's traveled from overseas. So, you know, just just give him a big round of applause when he comes in. And this guy came in and he came through one door and he probably walked no more than 10 meters across the front. And he went into another door. And all he did was he walked through, he put his hand up and he said, good morning. That was his only words. And the lady next to me said, now there's a confident man. And I said, yeah, but how do you know? And she said, I don't know, but I'm sure he is. And she was absolutely right. Now, a few years later, it was actually five years later, um, I was invited um, to an event to do a short talk. And the guy who was the guest speaker in Scotland was actually there doing a keynote. And when we'd finished, I, I went up to him and I said, so I, I don't know if you remember me, probably not. I said, but you did a, a, um, a talk for us in Scotland five years previously. It was absolutely fantastic. He said, I remember that event so well. And I said, why was that? And he said, I was having the most horrendous day. And I went, whoa, <laughs> tell me about your horrendous day. He said, well, first of all, <clears throat> I'd only landed that morning. And um, I'd, he said, sadly, the airline had lost my luggage. And I booked into the hotel and they uh, double booked my room. So I have no luggage and nowhere to stay. So the last thing I wanted to do really was to talk to you guys. And I said, well, that's strange because you look so confident. And he said, straight away, he said, well, of course, I'm always confident. And I said, so how do you do this? He said, okay. He said, it's all in my physiology, all of it. He said, so look, before I came out, he said, one thing that I always do is that I promise whenever I work with anybody, you get all of me or you get none of me. You never get 95%. It's all or nothing. And I, I kind of love that. And I just thought I'm definitely adopting that. That's fantastic. So he said, you get all of me or none of me. And he said, and then my confidence comes purely from my physiology. He said, so before I come out, I will stand tall, proud, shoulders back, head held high, and then I will come out. And every step I take is one of certainty. And every single gesture is one of certainty. And when I talk to you, I will talk with a tone of certainty. And I thought, that is fantastic. So for this guy, what he was saying was that his certainty in his physiology created a certainty in his mindset which was just at the time, absolutely revolutionary to me. But it's something which I adopt with everyone. It's the first thing that we do. So we always adopt the physiology because it allows us to change our state of mind in a heartbeat, instantly. It's the easiest and the fastest way of doing it. So going back to, back to states is that, so, so you've read the book, you'll know this, but I have something called the cycle for success. And there's lots of variations of this. Um, but if you can imagine that there is a clock face <clears throat> and at the top of the clock where it says 12, just imagine the word state. And then where there's this is the three, so it'll be three o'clock, there will be the word energy. And at six o'clock, we have actions. And at nine o'clock, we'll have results and an arrow running all the way around them. So, again, I'll come up with a story to explain this. So, so first of all, most people come to see me because they want a different result. And of course they do. That's what everybody wants. But when we focus purely on results, then what we have to do at some point is to contemplate failure. Now, I know we spoke about failure and saying the importance of it. But of course, if you, you're not educated in this, then failure can, can seem that <clears throat> it's something that we want to stay away from. In actual fact, um, we are pre-programmed to avoid failure. And again, I'm sure we're, we're touching that later. So if we look, go back to our cycle for success, we have, so we have states and then we have energy and then we have actions and then we have results. Now, probably about 25 years ago, so a while now, I was asked if I would like to play in a five-a-side football match. So I know football to us is, is different to you guys, so you call it soccer. So we had a five-a-side indoor soccer match. And I have a belief that I am the worst footballer soccer player on the planet i mean i just i'm awful beyond belief but this guy is very persuasive and says to me come on it'll be fun it'll be fun i said okay okay so i i decided i i would go ahead and play but when he told me who we were playing and when he told me who our team was 
I knew in an instance this was going to be anything but fun because these guys are highly competitive. So I went in there with a state of anxiety and apprehension and nerves. I really, really didn't want to do it, which meant that I tapped into very, very little energy at all. And I mean, I'm sure you've all felt this when you feel so overwhelmed, when you feel so anxious, you can actually feel the energy just draining out of your body. And that's exactly what happened. Because I had little or no energy, <clears throat> it meant that I was my actions were absolutely dreadful. And because I had bad actions, that gave me a predictably poor result, which reinforced my state that this was something to be really, really quite anxious about. Now, <clears throat> if you look at that in a different way, my nine-year-old son, Rowan, who has unlimited enthusiasm for just about anything and everything. So I, we, we said to him, my wife and I said to him last year, would you like to run in the local junior cross-country championships? Now, Rowan is no runner. <laughs> He's not a runner at all. But as I say, he has unlimited enthusiasm for just about anything and everything. So he said, yeah, 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 be absolutely fantastic. Can't wait. So we got to the venue and he's literally jumping up and down. He is full of excitement. He just can't wait. So he has a state of excitement and joy and fun. He's just ready to go, which meant that he tapped into huge amounts of positive energy, which meant that his actions were as good as they could possibly be which actually meant that he had a much better result than it was when we anticipated, which meant that his, it reinforced his state, which was just something to be really, really excited about. So people say, OK, so I have four things to think about. I've got my state and my energy and my actions and my results. But the reality is, is that if you can pay attention or put your focus onto your states and your actions, so in other words, the work that I do with people and then the actions are what they learn from their coaching staff. It means that the energy and more important, the results will just take care of themselves. And I think essentially that is so important because it just allows you to put the emphasis and all of your focus on your, your states and your actions rather than thinking about the result. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly does. And it makes me think as well, it, it's one of those things that I think it's not just athletics, but it's anything in life. And it's something that I've studied as well in terms of just general life in general and even like business. And I've read this from people talking about entrepreneurship is to one of the biggest gauges is gauging and looking at your enthusiasm and what fuels you. And that's that's a, key, a cornerstone, because if you just if you just think about the work and it could be the same thing related to sport, if you just think about the training and and you're not thinking about your own emotional state and your your enthusiasm and everything that that yeah. breeds that then you're you're kind of running on a half tank a little bit you're you're a little bit yeah. limited yeah yeah completely completely and i don't think it matters what ability it is you know if it's it's guys like you know for me playing my my five side match um, right the way up to you know kind of international standards i think it's something that we all need to learn and adopt you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah. I, as you were talking to, I think a really simple anecdote that I think it was from Daniel Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, but I could be wrong. But it was just talking about how just the act of smiling, it, whether you're happy or not, if you just yeah. smile, and you're in a terrible mood, you just smile. The the biochemical reactions in your body will start to go off that indicate that you yeah. are in fact happier and. And so I, I was thinking about that when you were talking about just just standing up uh, tall and straight and confident. And, and funny enough, I, I'm, I've done uh, training methods where just in bodyweight positions where that is an important element of the exercise is this. I think a lot of people would look at the exercise and think, OK, you're supposed to be tall and pull your shoulders back a little bit and push your chest forward and, and think about that just from a purely postural perspective. But I think about it from a this is a state training. This is this this is to train your state first and foremost. And yeah, and, and yeah. you know, I, I think about doing those exercises and for people listening to the show, I like an an isometric lunge would be the ones people uh are very familiar with. But I think about myself as like Superman. Like what would if if Superman <laughs> yeah. is doing this exercise, yeah. what Perfect. would he his posture be like? And everything yeah. changes. And it's almost like that's that's kind of like the core of the training package to me, is it starts here. And so anyways, as you were, uh, as you were yeah, talking, no, I was thinking about that. Perfect. Perfect. 
And so in terms of uh, in, like an, taking that over in, into an athletic story, like if someone's playing uh, snooker or golf or, or anything, I was, I was going to say, too, I feel like darts would be a, a huge, huge uh, yes. part for this. We don't play that as much as you guys do nearly. But uh, what's what's your uh, so what are some things that athletes just walking onto the, the, the playing field? Um, like, like what are some uh, ideas and thoughts for people to keep with them as they're, um, noting their enthusiasm or using their body language to create a different response as they're getting ready to play or perform? Yeah. I mean, I think what you just said just now, which was about, you know, the smile. So I think that it's, it's more than you're absolutely right. It's more than just the posture. It's more than the one that just standing, you know, tall, proud shoulders back and head held high. It's more than that. So it's kind of like the the way that we would use our internal voice. Um, It's the tone of voice we use as well. Um, And also, um, you know, like, like you're saying is that, you know, just, just smiling, just notice, just notice that when you smile, how you, how your state will change. I used to get people to say, what I want you to do is I want you to kind of, you know, sit down, put your head down and, and slump your shoulders and then say to yourself things like, God, I feel amazing. So you try and say that to yourself when you're in that position. It is so difficult because you, you want to you want to stretch out. So by using those words, by thinking about the words that you use and the sentences you're using, the tone that you use, all of those things. So I, I work with um, with a footballer um, quite recently, actually. And, you know, he plays at, at a very high level. Um, and he showed me a video of him coming out onto the pitch and he was at one point just biting his fingernails. And, and I said to him, you know what, we, we've really got some work to do. But the first thing we need to do is to kind of change the way that you actually walk out on, onto that pitch. So, so what we did was he, he comes out like he owns the place. Mm-hmm. So he thinks about what he sees as, as the best player on the planet, which was at, at the time Cristiano Ronaldo. And he said, I said, how would he come out? Think about how that guy would come out. And he said, well, he'd come out like he, like he owns it. Absolutely. So, so demonstrate to me, what is that like? And, and I remember actually going uh, over something else is that I remember there was a tennis coach and this is going back years and years and years. And he was just getting people to enjoy tennis at, at a level which they'd never experienced before. So they, he wasn't training to people to become, you know, the, the next Federer. He was just looking at people who wanted to enjoy the game more. And, and so they, they all came in and, and he just gave them to hit a few balls over the net. And then he'd said to somebody, he'd say, who's your favorite player? So maybe they'd say Nadal. He'd say, okay, I want you to imagine Nadal's over there. Just watch him play. You know, watch the way he hits. What's that? That kind of, you know, that, that physique. The, watch, the, watch the way he hits the ball. Watch the way he moves around the core. And the guy was going, yeah, I've got that. He said, now I want you to walk in. Walk into his body, be in Nadal. And he goes, I can't. He said, just do it, just do it. So the guy went there and it was just unbelievable, the transformation. All of a sudden, he was like hitting the ball over there like he never used to. He was hitting the spots and he was kind of like bouncing up and down like he'd never enjoyed it before. And I thought, now that's interesting. Because like you were saying, you were saying just about Superman. Exactly the same concepts, exactly the same. It was is absolutely fabulous, and it just helps you become that that more that, that unstoppable force. You know, um, I, I I always say to people, look, when when you're thinking about kind of your posture, about being a better athlete, about that kind of body language, all of that, then just look at just just think about when you have a really good physiology, when you have that big smile, when you're saying the right things to yourself. Notice your energy levels. And I always like to put things on a scale. So I'll have one to 10, you know, 10 being you're absolutely unstoppable, 10, you're, you're asleep. <clears throat> and I'd say, so, you know, if you could aim for a nine or a 10 every day, fantastic. But if you let, if you said to yourself, I will not let myself go below an eight, never let myself go below an eight. So just imagine how much more productive you would be in your training session. It's just off the scale. And <clears throat> I, I, I remember there was a guy I worked with, he was a golfer. And, and the same thing he said to me. So he worked on physiology a lot. And he came to see me a couple of months later and said, it worked for a while, but then it's died off. And I said, no, doesn't die off. We're, we're missing something. We're definitely missing something. I said, tell me, tell me what it's like. So he was out there and, and he stood and I went, no, 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 no. He said, this is it. I said, no, it's not. And all I did was put my hand at the back of his back, my other hand on his chest, moved his back forward and his chest backwards, got his, my hand underneath his chin and pushed his chin up. And he goes, okay, that's better. I said, right, now think about the fire. Think about what is it you're going to do. Think about that you are the greatest player that's ever lived. You're the man. Everyone's 
is completely phased by you. You are going to walk out on that green like you are the greatest player that has ever existed, but mean it. And then all of a sudden, within, I say all of a sudden, within just a few seconds, he was a completely, and he said, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. He just couldn't wait to get back out there again. It was it was incredible. But I think those energy levels, which is physiology, and just having it at scale, so there's some kind of measure to it, um, I think is very, very important. And if you just said that I'd never allow myself to go below an eight. So if I start to feel that I'm not really feeling it, I don't feel unstoppable, first thing to do is you know that you need to create some motion. And I think Tony Robbins says, you know, emotion creates emotion, which is which is absolutely right. Um, and it's the quickest and the fastest way and anyone can do it. I, I really I love that stuff. I, I It makes me think, too, a lot of times in the, the sports performance coaching sector, we, we do athlete logs and are like, how how excited are you to train today? One through ten, you know, and, and various questions like that. But. Yeah. Very little. I think for every time we ask that question, I don't know, very, very rare, if ever, do we say, well, what are some ways to raise that now before we even get started yeah. with the session? We just yeah. kind of look at it as a after the fact. OK, you know, maybe, you know, life was you were under stress or, you know, training has been tough for X, Y, Z. But I I think to the athletes of mine who have regularly and across the years achieved the greatest results and those are the ones who consistently are coming in, like you said, above an eight. Like they are, and and regardless of my my training program, whether it was I I feel like it was good or bad for them or whatever. Like I, I do think the training program is important, but unless that was there, the results are just like that is uh, just goes hand in hand with results and and showing yeah, up with yeah. enthusiasm. But I, th- I think you're right, you know, even before the session begins to kind of like just just get everybody in that same state. So, you know, that you're, you're kind of starting off as, as you mean to go on. Um, and I think when you do that as, as a group, that's really powerful. I've heard it actually said, and I, I, I don't think I have enough experience across different groups to say, yes, I've been in all these situations and I know this. But I've heard it said amongst um, if you look at track and field. I've heard people make the comment that when it comes to sprinting, as opposed to maybe the other event groups, and I don't, I'm not sure, but but sprinting in particular, they talk about that culture is is even more of a factor there in in making fast sprinters than the other disciplines. And maybe it's just because sprinting is a little more innate compared to learning how to throw a shot put. There's more technique to it, or distance running. Yeah. There's more will and dedication that can you you can improve your your aerobic capacity more than your top end speed and. I don't know. I, I always I think that that's a really a little interesting, unique element. Uh, I was going to say, too, I, I, I want to mention this story because I'm going to forget it. But just as you were talking, <laughs> I was thinking about this and I go back to my own because I was I had so many gaps as an athlete, especially basketball. And I think that's why I gravitated towards the individual sport of track and field, because it was as far as I was concerned, it was more under my control. But the best practice, the best basketball practice I ever had was when my coach said, this was my senior year, and I remember it very clearly. He's like, today in practice, Joel, you are going to be, this is exactly what you were saying, Simon, is, is our, 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 our all-league, our number one player in our conference was a guy named Terrence Robinson. And he went to, I think it was Wayland University was the school. And he was kind of, I wouldn't say, maybe he's my rival a little bit on some level, like I guarded him when we would play. But he, our coach said today, Joel, when in practice, you're going to be Terrence Robinson, like, and you're going to act like him and you're going to, and, and I remember because I think he wanted our defense to try to adapt to this player. And I think the coach knew that inside of me, I could be like that player. Cause I, as I said, I, I had, I had put in the work, I'd done the physical work and that was the best practice I ever had. I didn't miss. I literally, I don't think I missed a shot. I was having so much fun because I knew I couldn't miss. And it was, yes. and it was, it was the most amazing practice experience I had ever had. And it was funny because I don't think I really truly connected the dots on. I did a little bit at the time, but I connect them more after the fact. And it was powerful. And and I just, it was like as soon as I'm given permission to be this player. You, everything changes. <laughs> yeah, isn't it power? You're absolutely right. It is. And it's and it's something that, you know, we, we can all do. So, you know, it doesn't matter what sport you play. It doesn't matter what level you play. You can always do that. And it, it's something that I, I, I mentioned in the book, you know, just kind of getting into that mindset and understanding what that must feel like to be that person um, is is a great place to be. And it's something that it doesn't matter what age you are, you, you anyone can do it. 
Yeah, I think of at my that what goes to my head too is over here in the United States is just looking at like LeBron James walking out to play any game. It's like the amount of swagger and confidence. It's like an eleven. It's an eleven <laughs> out of ten. Isn't yeah, isn't that fantastic? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so uh, talking about um, the emotional brain a little bit because I know a lot of yeah. um, from my understanding of NLP, a lot of it's just like helping us get in touch with our emotional brain, which for so many people I think is. It's it's you can't just say I'm gonna I'm gonna fix this necessarily. There's other ways to get to it, and and so how do we get in touch with our emotional brain and and, and get a handle on that a little bit more in, in training? And I know we just talked about one, which is that the posture and the state and becoming that taking yeah. out characteristics. But um, in terms of other ways of getting into the emotional brain, could you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah, completely. It's a great question, actually, because. You know, we all know that, you know, we all have a brain and there's a part of our brain which thinks purely with with emotion. So it's called the limbic system, but we don't get technical. It's just I like to make things really, really simple so anyone can get it. So we look at the emotional part of the brain and obviously, as, as a clue to the title, it creates emotion. Now, they, they can be the positive ones, like, you know, the excitement um, and the happiness and the joy. But obviously, they can bring the negative ones as well, you know, which is the frustration and the anxiety and the, and the apprehension and all of those things. But first, we have to understand that this, this part of our brain, this emotional part is very, very primitive. Um, and it's actually designed still to live in a very primitive world. It hasn't really developed anywhere near as fast as other parts of our brain. So it's prime directive. The point of it being there is to keep you safe and to keep you alive. So it is in part our fight or flight response. I'm sure that everybody knows what the fight or flight response is. But secondly, it's our it's designed to avoid failure. So people say, okay, you know, I don't want to fail. If, if there's a thought of failure, I'd rather not do something. And the reason that is, is because, as we said, this part of your brain is, is very primitive in its thinking. Now, in a primitive world, if we were to go out hunting and we would consistently fail to land a successful hunt, then, of course, then we starve. Now, we know that's not the case anymore. But remember, it still thinks in that very primitive way. So it sees failure as something which is potentially dangerous. Now, its its third prime directive is that it needs to be part of a group or it likes to be part of a group. It feels that there is safety in numbers and not just be part of a group, but actually to be a valued member of a group. It just feels that when we're a group, it's more like a shared experience. And, and we've, we've all kind of experienced this before when we, we may be in a group of people, maybe four or five of us, and then we tell a joke and no one laughs. Everyone stands and stares like, what on earth did you just say? And you just have that moment in time and you think, God, I just wish I had a time machine just to take me back three minutes where I could just scrap that whole thing. And the reason you feel, I mean, people say, I just wish the ground would open up and swallow me. And that's exactly how you feel, because what's happening is your emotional part of the brain is saying something like, we need a group of people. We need these people to keep us safe. And all of a sudden, they're starting to think, really? What are we hanging around with this guy for? You know, he needs to be out of the group. And then you start to get all flustered and it stays with you and you'll keep remembering it. And then maybe you'll never tell a joke in front of a group of people again. So it has this way of it, its prime directive really, as I say, is to keep us safe and to keep us alive. Now, we can't get rid of it and we can't do a huge amount with it. But what we can do is that we can change something because most people subscribe to the model that we accept information through one or more of our, our five senses. So we see something, hear something, touch, smell, or taste something. Um, and then that information goes to the, the emotional brain, which will produce an emotion that's in line with the information that it's received. But of course, that cannot be correct, because how is it that three people could experience the same thing yet have three different emotions? So, for instance, uh, an, an example would be like a roller coaster. So person one looks at the roller coaster and goes, that is so exciting. And the second person said, that is terrifying. And the third person said, is that it? Just the roller coaster. I mean, really, it's really quite boring. So three people have the same experience yet have three different emotions behind it. So clearly... Um, we are missing, we have a missing component, which I call programs. So, so this is my model. So we accept information from one or more of our five senses, which is collected by our programs. Now, our programs are our beliefs, our decisions, attitudes, 
experiences and our language. So we all have these programs, but the data loaded into them is vastly different for each and every one of us because the data is loaded over our lifetime. So this information is then fed to the emotional brain, which produces an emotion which is in line with the information it's received from the programs. So now, fortunately, we can reload the data in all of the programs over, over time so that we can have more control over our emotions, our behaviors, and of course our results. So we can't actually get rid of and do much with the emotional part of the brain, but we can feed information to it very, very differently. So of course then we get a different response and a different emotion. So in terms of, um, if get, of getting that different emotion and feeding information differently, could you give a few examples? I mean, is this very sense specific? Like you mentioned the different, we intake, through different senses. And I, I would imagine in terms of athletics, that's mostly mostly sight and hearing and maybe touch or, or, or I guess maybe there's like the smell, the certain smell of the court or the pitch or how does that, how does that fit in with the senses? So, so what that is, is I, I'll give you an example of how we could sort of reload the programs differently. So um, let's, I'll come up with a real life example. Um, so just around the corner from us, quite a few years ago, there was um a skateboard park that had just been opened up. And I was just looking around. I didn't even know it opened up. And I listened to two conversations. And one guy, he's probably in his 40s, was explaining to his friends that this was a really, really bad idea um, because he felt that now crime rate was going to go up. There's going to be unsociable behavior. There's going to be drinking, drug taking. He said, when you get young kids congregating, this is nothing but a problem. And then I walked around the other side and there was a guy probably around the same sort of age, which was saying, just look at this. Isn't this incredible? Because what people are doing here is that they've got young kids working together. They're working as a team. They're off the streets. You know, they're, they're learning some valuable, valuable skills. This is absolutely amazing. So basically what's happened is their beliefs about that situation was drastically different. So, so for instance, the, the, the first guy has probably during his life um, experienced some behavior with young kids which is that they are, and they can be, they're not, they are, but they can be, you know, an, uh, antisocial, they can take drugs, they can take drink, of course, absolutely. And he has decided to take that information and load it into a belief that that is the way young people operate. <laughs> but clearly the other guy had, had, had looked at things very, very differently and seen, seen kids of that age from a completely different perspective and decided that actually what they've done here is that they've, they've got together, they have created um, a, a team. They've created a, a team which are going to help each other, put skills in place. So they, they kind of basically loaded their belief programs very, very differently. Let, let me give you a different example. And this, this was um, a basketball situation where there's a guy that I work with, um, with we call Greg. Um, and, and, and basically Greg was working with a coach he had um, he, he worked. We, so he, he signed for this team because he had a huge respect for this coach. He, he decided this coach was probably the best in Europe, and they'd had an, a number of bad results. Things hadn't gone particularly well, um, and then what happened was is that Greg's coach, who Greg thinks the world of, after one match, came up to Greg and basically said to him, "You know what? Is that your performance have been really bad? I think your attitude's bad. You haven't been performing properly any more of this, and I think your career's finished." And he just walked away. <laughs> and and Greg was absolutely astonished by this, and he went home. Now, what he did was something which we all tend to do, and we need to be aware of this: is that he went through that conversation over and over and over again. And he highlighted the bits which were the worst, which was, you know, your attitude's bad. You're not going to make it. I don't think much of you. You've been playing badly. And he ran this situation, this, this movie in his mind over and over and over and over again. And what's happening is, is when we keep running that movie in our minds, it is now starting to load the belief program in a very different way to what it was just, just a few days earlier. Because, you know, he was he was being told and he was telling himself how good he was, how talented he was. This this was a belief. But all of a sudden, because he's got some some bad some feedback, which he, he, he didn't like and was was pretty unfair as well. 
because he kept repeating it to himself, he's now loaded the belief program in a very, very different way. So every time he got on the basketball court, what would happen, he would see the court, he would kind of smell those those, those smells, and he would, you know, hear the sound of the, the, the echoing around the around the court. And as soon as he walked into that place, and what happens, that information was going through the programs. So it was looking at a belief program. The belief program was saying something like, you're not very good, you're not very talented, and you're not going to make it, which then fed his emotional brain which was saying, hold on a second, we want to avoid failure and we've got to make people happy. We want to be part of a group and this is not going to happen. So what the, the emotional brain would then do is create an emotion which was full of anxiety and nerves, anything it could do to get him to say, I'm out, I'm quit, I'm, I just can't handle this. Because then if he leaves basketball, he then returns to a safe place where he won't be judged and he won't fail. Does that make this hard? Does that help? <laughs> yes. It just, that I was just, oh, there's lots of thoughts going through my head about just sports, <laughs> youth sports in general, and like just how important it is for what the parents and the coaches, especially the parents, but also the coaches are saying to these young athletes as they come up. Cause like the burnout rates and the pressure is so high and it just, it really, it actually hurts me a little bit. Like I, I, this is something that affects me on the inside as I think about all these athletes who you, you, these things are getting piled on over the years, right? And and to the point where that joy is replaced with something else for, like you said, the wanting to fit in, to, to be loved, to fit into part of the group. Yes, and yes. I just think we can do so yes. much better for all our athletes. Yeah. And and yeah. it's <laughs> it's a it's a heavy thing. I, I mean, that's that's definitely where I go. Obviously, it's it's shown up in the people who do stick through it on some level too, or that happens at some point. And I'm like, man, how many little things do I have to unpack? If I was going to be a pro basketball player right now, I'd have to unpack a lot. And uh, anyway, it's, it's so yeah, it, with, with, um, so with a player like that, so say, yeah, like you said, like the coach has told you some things and the player is dwelling on them. What, what is the first thing to start to get them to, to unwire that? Or what's a big principle to say, hey, you need to rewire or reconfigure or realign this, this thought? Like, what are some, some methods that, to help to reprogram? Yeah, absolutely. So, so with Greg, the, the first thing I said we should do uh, is I explained to him is that the coach's intention, not what he said, not the way that Greg interpreted it, but his intention was to get Greg somehow at his best again. That's what he's trying to do because that's what he wants. He doesn't want Greg to leave. Of course he doesn't. He knows that he's talented. But in, in his way, in his own sort of world of reality, he thought that by talking to Greg like that, somehow Greg's would, would kickstart and, and he, he would sort of you know get his form back again because that wasn't going to happen. So I explained to Greg that what we need to do is, first of all, we need to separate the intention from what it was that he actually said. I said, so we have to look at the intention and say that he wants you to get your form back. So then I said, so what would he have needed to say for you to get your form back? What, what would needed to happen? And he said, if he had come up to me and said something like, you know, as, as a team, we win as a team and we lose as a team. We are a unit of people that work together. And then if he had said something along the ways of, and you're a talented player. Now, now class doesn't go in a few days. Okay, you're a class player. And what we need to do now is to work out how we can get that form back. But you know what? We work together. And that's what we do. He said, if he'd said that to me, that would have been fantastic. I said, okay, okay. So now what we did was we created a movie in our mind of the coach coming up to him and saying exactly that. And then and it, was, it was difficult to be to begin with because, you know, he stood that old memory in his mind. But so what we need to do is just to kind of re, just go over it, almost like, a, you know, a recording. So we just need to go over it and over it and over it until it takes over from that old one. So he was thinking about, you know, what the coach would say, the way he would look. He was making this movie in his mind sort of big, bright and colorful. The sounds loud and making it a real experience until he got to a point where it just didn't seem to bother him anymore. And actually he started to enjoy basketball again. And we, we had to really push on with that. I think they had like a two week break. So we didn't have that long, but we pushed and pushed and pushed. And Greg, to be fair to him, was, was, was very, very eager to, to make this happen. So that, that's what we did. I mean, people will still say, well, hold on a second, but the coach didn't say that. And absolutely right, he didn't. But it was his intention that's what we need to remember. So when, when people come up with criticism from, from coaches, what they inevitably are doing is they're trying to get the best out of the player. But of course, they don't always say it in a way that works. They say it in a way that works for them, 
but it might not work for the player. So, you know, sometimes a little bit of background, understanding what, what motivates people is, is, a, is a good idea to start off with. Yeah, I, I, that's a great point is just that the intention of the coach, I, I think coaches are so often well-intentioned. I mean, the majority, uh, if, you know, the vast yeah. majority, but it's just, there is always that little hang up in how the coach sees it and, and how it, I think it happens. I mean, there's relations to being a parent of young kids, I'm starting to see that immensely. There's, 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 you have to, to understand the mind of the, the young person that you are working with versus your own intentions. And there's always that gap and we're always going to mess it up. I think, I of mean, course. we hope, we hope not to, but we're gonna. And so <laughs> it's, it always there has to be a way to come in and, and rewire and realign that. I think that's, that's powerful. I, it makes me th- do to think from the, what I've, um, the, like I've listened to like Awaken the Giant by Tony Robbins. And I think in that he talks about the ways to repicture these things that are negative. And, and I think in his situation, it's making cartoons of it and thing. And, but I think that's different if it's a coach and it's someone that you really respect are working closely with. I think that's different than like a, a boss that's giving you problems like Tony would talk about or yeah. whatever. But so, yeah. Um, so I, I did want to get into, uh, you mentioned this, I, I love what you said about you get all, you get nothing. And I think it's yeah. hard these days to live in the moment and be yeah. in the, fully in the present. And could you chat a little bit about how, I think we've covered shades of it certainly throughout this show so far, but could you give a few thoughts on how athletes can really fully engage themselves in the present? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's so important, so important to, to actually better do that. So um, first of all, is that anxiety is, is very much based on things that have happened in the past or, or things that have gone wrong in the past or a perceived problem in the future. So that when we're in the moment, it just means that we can focus on the job in hand. You see, if you are thinking about 25% of you is thinking about a past event, or maybe 30% is thinking about something which may go wrong in, in a short period of time, then it just means that you cannot be totally committed to what you're doing in that exact moment. So, you know, when I, I work with golfers, so to try and get people in there into that moment, it's all very well saying, don't, don't worry about the past, don't worry about the future, we're in, we're in the now. It, it doesn't really work like that. So, so what I say is when I, so I, I give a, uh, an example again of a golfer <clears throat> and I will say, so that there was uh, a golfer who was a young lad and he was very, very talented and, and things weren't going that well for him. And then he used to lose his temper quite quickly. So if he, if he, you know, the first, the first two holes were crucial. If they went wrong, that was it. His round was done. And so what we did was I said to him, look, golf is not, about 18 holes. It's not even about 70 plus shots. It's about playing one shot multiple times. So what I want you to do is that when you tee off on the first, you are teeing off like it's the only shot you will play all day. That's it. That's the only shot you're going to play. Wherever that ball lands, when you walk to it, same thing applies. It's the only shot you're going to play all day. And I do this with golfers, with, with even tennis players, certainly with, with snooker and pool players and dart players as well, any individual sports. But <clears throat> something else that, that we do, which is when we, it's like a sport, so, so like, like soccer. And <clears throat> with, with, with sports like that, it's a little bit different because obviously it's difficult because it's so fast moving. It's difficult to say, this is the only thing I'm going to be doing all day. This is the only thing I'm going to be doing all day because it's moving too quickly. So what we do to sort of get them in that moment, to get their focus on what it is that they're actually doing and not thinking about past or, or future events, is that if they're going to pass the ball, I say to them, I want you to think about where you're going to pass that ball absolutely on the button. So imagine there was a coin on the pitch and that's where that ball's going to land. So if there's a golfer, I would say, don't think about an area, think about exactly where you want it to land. You know, so many people think, oh, there's a bunker there or there's a lake there or the trees are here. And what do they do? They hit the trees and the bunker and the lake because that's where their, their point of focus is. So it's like focus on what you want and not what you don't want. So going back to the, to the soccer players, you know, you plan in the pass. I say, when you plan the pass, I want it absolutely on the button. When you are shooting for goal, think about specifically exactly where you want that ball to land. When you're making a run, Think about exactly where you want to go. We think about that precision. It's like using that internal voice and saying, get out of my face, that's where I'm going to be. So you are, you are channeling 
all of your energy into that moment, that moment in time, rather than allowing the focus to be drifted off by thinking of past or, or, or future events. Yeah, I really, I really like that example of this is the like the only shot you get all day. I've, yeah. I've heard of uh, track and field coaches who do that for relays where I think a typical, like where the baton is exchanged between the two sprinters. And I, I think the typical practices, oh, just keep practicing till you get it right. Maybe you do four or five yeah. or 10 of exchanges. But I've heard of one, one coach said they got the best results. I believe that they ever had when it was like, you only get two or something like that. And that's it. And if yeah. you mess it up, then you will come back next week and you do it again. But yeah. it's just these two. And I think there's it plus two. I think that just shows the value of just doing less like it, it less, but the, the, then when you're doing less, there's so much more on that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, it's true. It's absolutely. And you know, the, we talk about sort of mindfulness and, and, and th- those kind of activities are really, really good for sort of just getting capturing you and centering you and putting you in, in, in that, you know, that, that moment in time. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's so powerful. Um, well, Hey, that is, um, Really good things to think about for the show today, Simon. I, I, I feel like I could talk to you on this for hours, but uh, man, it's. I think this stuff is is powerful and it's relevant, and I think it's stuff that the mind is so often talked about, but I think it's so underappreciated and underutilized. And it's been really good stuff that you've that material that you've shared with us. I, I really appreciate all this in your time, and I know it's going to give me some things to think about throughout the weeks and months ahead. So I appreciate yeah. it. Today. It's, it's been lovely. Can I, can I just share one more thing? Oh, of course. Uh, we, we, yeah. Just one more. Because we spoke about being in the moment and having that focus. And a lot of people say, you know what, how do I exercise that focus muscle? Because we always say it's a psychological muscle that needs to be worked. And, and there was lots of ways of doing it. But something that I've had a lot of success with with people is that particularly when, when they're in an environment which is quite hostile, where there's a lot of noise going on, there's a bit of focus on what you're doing when you've got, you know, 50, 60,000 people shouting their opinion at you can be quite challenging. So what I get people to do is I give them a book. And I give them a pair of headphones and then we play some music, which is kind of upbeat and quite a catchy tune. So it normally get their attention. So to begin with, we turn it down really quite, quite low. So there's only so it's very, very quiet. Give them a book. And the challenge is to read the book, comprehend what you've read and still have the music playing. Now, that's quite difficult. But once they do that, we then start to turn it up and turn it up and turn it up. (laughs) And after quite a short period of time, they've got this very catchy music blaring in their headphones. Yet they still be able to focus on what they're reading and comprehend it. And honestly, it stretches that focus muscle like nothing else. It's a wonderful trick to use. And I, I just wanted to share that with you guys. Yeah, that's all. I'll keep that in mind. It, it reminds me of uh, people when when basketball players are shooting free throws and there's a million people, not a million, but like hundreds or maybe even thousand people behind the in front of behind the hoop yelling and screaming and shooting. And then I've had my basketball coach, I think at one point had the, it, I've heard of people doing that, too, where like the rest of the team's going to get behind the basket and try to drown that out. But I, the book is and the headphones is like really turning that up. And uh, what a cool <laughs> yeah. way of, of achieving focus. Fantastic. But it's very powerful. I, I definitely say try it. Definitely try it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of tools that I think anyone listening to this can come away from. And I know I certainly did. So thank you for your time, Simon. I, I appreciate yeah, it. Today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate this that finishes another episode i enjoyed doing these so much and what an awesome topic i can't imagine that you didn't find something that you can use immediately in your own uh, coaching athletics or life in general and i know i sure did so we'll be back next week with another great guest If you enjoyed the show, you can really help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. And finally, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. We We appreciate them as a longtime sponsor of the show. All right, we'll see you guys next week.